0: Join me then in Matthew chapter 22 as we continue our series of expositions through this gospel. We're running into this next two weeks of these different sects of Judaism, these different factions within Judaism. They're coming up to Jesus and trying to entrap him, trying to catch him in a word. They want to discredit him. They want to befuddle him. They want to shame him. They want to show why they should be leading Israel and the masses should not be listening to Jesus. Everybody has a take. Everybody's got a slant. Everybody has a bias. You see it in our text with the different factions of the, of the Judaism that are coming after Jesus. But we see it all over the place as we walk in this world as you turn on the news or pull up the internet on your phone or you pull up a podcast. Everybody's giving their take, their bias on their perspective on whatever it is, and it makes it so easy in that way to be distracted and pulled away from the truth. We hear about factions, lobbies, sectarian debates, and where you have these smooth talking orators and salesmen all trying to lead you somewhere. They're, they're all peddling their thing. They're all selling you something, and they want you on board. They want you to buy in. The trouble is they might not tell you the truth to get you to buy in. Have we been there? And, and you see it as you compare just the various news sites that are on the Internet. Here's one event that happens. Go to the leftist news site and look what the headlines are, and then go to the rightist news site and look what the headlines are different headlines, same event. They're all selling you something. But who is right? Who should you believe? Who should you learn from? And I'm not talking about the news sites, <laughs> but just life in general. Who is lying to me? Why are they trying to entrap me? Why are they trying to bait me? Why are they trying to deceive us? Maybe part of it is really this. Maybe this is more common than we realize. But those spokesmen Maybe they actually have convinced themselves of the untruth that they tell, the untruth that they're peddling. Because see, we all want a side. We all want a group. We all want to find an identity where we belonged and where we are being affirmed in our thinking. Isn't that what's so much of what's going on in social media? And so we find these factions, we find these groups we can be a part of, we create these echo chambers where we keep getting affirmed in what we think, but then we're never challenged about, well, is this true. Through all the noise, through all of the fibs, through all of the biases and slants, though, we have truth. And Christ cuts it right in all the factions of Judaism here. He cuts to the truth. He gives out the truth. He draws us and pulls us into the truth. He cuts it straight. And he's calling us out of these fallacious factions to find home and an identity with him, with the truth, and with his kingdom. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at verses 15 to 46. Two parts here. Here's the theme. You need to learn from the Lord Jesus. You need to submit to his teaching, bow to what he's teaching you, the truth that he's giving you, because it is the truth. Learn from the Lord Jesus so you can avoid these factious follies, these factious traps that are leading you away from him and the truth, because that's what they're all doing. They're pulling you away from Christ. So put them aside. Put your ears and your heart attuned to the truth as Christ gives it. And what unfolds, we'll see over these next two weeks, are different traps, again, represented by these different factions in Judaism, these different traps that distract us and lead us away from the truth. And we'll see four of them, Lord willing, over the next two weeks. The first one we see is the trap of religious nationalism. Look at that in verses 15 to 22. Then we'll see the trap of theological liberalism. We'll see that in 23 to 33. That's where we'll end this week. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll pick up with the trap of self-righteous legalism and then the trap of self-assured lordship. But where we are today, we're going to begin with first this trap of religious nationalism. Now, what do we mean by religious nationalism? It's this alignment with the kingdom of God with, with any country or kingdom of this earth. And namely for us, that's, of course, the United States. It's where there's not a separation of church and state, but there is a marriage or conflation even of church and state, that they become one and the same. The trouble is, this conflation, this assuming they're the same, results in a warping and then a distortion of God's true kingdom and the very nature of what His kingdom is and how it works and the very thing that Christ is building. And that's a problem today if you want to talk about Christian, quote, nationalism. But it's not just a modern problem. But it's an age-old one, and we see it here with these Jewish religious nationalists. It was very live and well in the first century. Now, they had differing, differing flavors and factions, but we encounter two of those religious nationalist groups here. First off, we're reintroduced to the Herodians. This was a group within Judaism that were committed to the Herodian rule and dynasty. Now, this is a Jewish rule, to be sure. The Herodians were Jewish, But it was very pragmatic as well. Very, as some would say, influenced by the Roman culture. If you remember Herod the Great, he ruled over all of Palestine uh, for some time. And then he died. And then his kingdom got divided up to his sons. Until many of his sons were very inept at leading. And so the Romans took parts of it back over. But the point was the Herodians and the family still had influence in Palestine. Why? Because the Romans propped them up. It was by Herod's cooperation with the Romans that he had any abiding influence in Israel. So the Herodians would represent a form of Jewish nationalism that that cooperated fully with Rome. They saw that as the way or pathway forward for God's kingdom. So that's one group. And then we're reintroduced, of course, to the Pharisees, who we've heard all about as we've walked through this gospel. See, the Pharisees, too, were religious nationalists. They wanted a Jewish state in Israel, uh, but they longed for the Messiah to come from heaven or From the promised line. And this Messiah would conquer the Romans, conquer their oppressors, liberate them. So you see, they were not friendly to Rome, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this separatist group. They sought to keep themselves pure and separated from all of Rome's and Gentile corrupting influences. So you have two religious zealots, so to speak, trying to create their own religious nations. Uh, of a Jewish form nonetheless, Uh, but they had very different perspectives on how to get there and very different emphases within them. So they rarely saw eye to eye, the Herodians and the Pharisees. They rarely agreed, but here they agree because they have a common enemy and they're coming against King Jesus. Let's see it. Verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So the Pharisees, they've had enough of Jesus, right? We've been with Jesus now as he's been, as he's rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. He's been hammering the religious worship of the day. He's been hammering those Pharisees, showing their emptiness and the corruptness of their worship. And the Pharisees have had enough. The Pharisees have tried to catch Jesus and entrap Jesus. Hasn't worked. And so now they've created this plot, this scheme where they can get him. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to team up with the Herodians and they're going to set up a scenario where Jesus will be guaranteed to offend somebody. So you have the Pharisees, who were very anti-Roman. You got the, coupled with the Herodians, who were quite pro-Roman. And together they come to ask Jesus a question, and it's a setup. They ask him a question, but again, it's no honest one. Verse 15, they plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. That means to trap him, to ensnare him, to catch him like an animal. Again, they wanted to have him arrested. That was what we saw at the end of chapter 21, verse 46, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the crowds. So they have to discredit him. They have to trap him in a word. And so what's their trap? Again, it's this question. Verse 17, Jesus, tell us what you think. Of course, they butter him up beforehand. Oh, you are such an honest and non-biased person. You'll just tell us God's truth in front of these Competing factions. What do you think, Jesus? Verse 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? And they understood this puts Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, doesn't it? That is, if Jesus says it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, (laughs) he would instantly offend the powerful Romans who would go to their buddy Pilate. And they would then be able to paint Jesus as an insurrectionist and a rebel. And the Jews knew what the Romans did to insurrectionists. They crucified them. So to dodge that landmine, we all figure, Jesus would then have to say, well, perhaps it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And at that moment, then Jesus would lose all credibility with the masses. What do you mean pay taxes to Caesar? If his kingdom, whatever kingdom Jesus is building, if it's not going to oppose the Roman Gentiles, this kingdom that the Jews knew to be evil, idolatrous, to be corrupting. What what kind of kingdom do you even build or bring, Jesus? And so it's a trap. The Pharisees saw this is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. There's no way out of this, so it seems. Jesus then springs a trap of his own, so to speak, turning their trap right back on him. And what he does is this. He exposes the Pharisees, He exposes the Herodians, he exposes the crowds listening in, he exposes us perhaps as we're listening in now, that maybe we are after the wrong kind of kingdom. And to expose their folly, he first just makes a simple request. Verse 19, Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, which for all their umbrage against Caesar, they happen to have a coin handy. Let's just leave it there. But with a coin in hand, then, Jesus now just poses a simple question in verse 20. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? The denarius of that time, it bore the head of Tiberius Caesar on it. And the writing below or around the coin said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Ooh, that sounds bad, doesn't it? It just sounds pagan. Pagan. First of all, scrupulous Jews would have been very allergic to have images of any kind anywhere, let alone of a man on a coin. And then that man is called the son of divine Augustus, also a man. I mean, this is blasphemy. Of course we cannot engage in such idolatry. Of course we shouldn't even have those coins, let alone pay them. If you pay them back to Rome, what are you doing? You're you're abetting and funding an idolatrous, God-mocking emperor. There's no way. And earlier rebellions in Israel were funded by this very thinking. Actually, back to AD 6, there was a Judas who led a number against this very fact of the coins and paying this tax. He and his followers were crucified. 3,000 of them were strung along the streets of Israel. But Jesus posed the simple question, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? He's leading the discussion now, isn't he? And they get the right answer. Of course, they know. Well, it's Caesar's. And then here comes Jesus' punchline, verse 21. They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Boom. Mic drop. And if we don't realize how significant it is, just look at the reaction. They didn't anticipate this answer, verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This ingenious phrase just causes the listeners to marvel. Even the Pharisees who set up the trap, they they got nothing to say back to this. They've been nabbed. If they hope to expose Jesus as some fraud or some dupe or rube from the country, forget it. He showed them all who the master teacher was. They had nothing left for to say to him. They just left. Now, what's so insightful about Jesus' statement is this, among many things, but is this. He does not advocate for some middle way. See, they put him on a dilemma where there seem to be only two options. Either pay taxes or you don't. And yet Jesus comes up with the third option, but that third option is not a middle way. It's not as if Jesus is saying, hey, it's good to compromise here. You know, please Caesar a little, then go and please God a little, and you'll be fine. No, that's not at all what Jesus talks about. What does he do? He reveals the truth. You've missed the truth. Let me reveal the truth. He gives the proper perspective, the God-designed perspective on God and government and how we relate to them. And what does he teach? Well, first of all, it's this. Caesar, representing government, does have a proper realm in place in the Christian life. You should give those things to Caesar, to the government, the things that they are due, the things that belong to them, the things that are theirs. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So, for example, this is why Paul can tell the Roman church, who's in the capital city of the world, he can tell them that you need to give to them, to the Romans, what they are due, your compliance, your submission, Listen to this, Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. So there's the call, call to obey even, a call to submit. As a citizen, that is what is due to your governing authorities, to your rulers. And why? Well, the reasoning from Romans is this, is because you know God put those people in place. And that was true even in first century Rome, where the government was at many times less than friendly to Christians. And the leaders themselves, this was very clear, they were quite wholly morally bankrupt. And yet, that was no excuse or out for why you should or should not obey them. So, give to Caesar the government the things that are theirs. And what is that? Well, in the immediate context in Romans and even here in Matthew, it's taxes. Given the taxes. Give them back those dollars that have Washington's face on them. They belong to them in that sense. Along with this, you give them your submission. You give them your allegiance, your compliance as citizens, generally speaking. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But in the main, Christians should be seen as good and compliant citizens. What else do you give them? You pray for them. According to 1 Timothy 2, you pray that we can have a peaceable and quiet life where the gospel can easily run and not be opposed And of course, you're praying that the saving work of the gospel would work in them. Because we recognize that in God's wise providence, He doesn't always, He doesn't typically, put Christians in authority over us in the government. Nevertheless, we are still called to honor them. Give the things that are Caesar's back to Caesar. Okay, but that's only one side of it, right? Our obedience to Caesar is, is a qualified one. Why? Because there is a higher authority expressed when Jesus says, you need to give the things that are God's to God. So above all others, of course, God deserves your total obedience, your full compliance, your unquestioning devotion, your total love, and it's for all time. Such that, what does that mean? When these two authorities clash, when they make competing claims on your obedience, you must side with God always, every time. That's why the apostles say what they do in Acts chapter 5. We must obey God rather than man. Or to put it negatively, never obey Caesar to disobey God, ever. So to put this together then, obey Caesar where you can, but always obey Jesus. Okay, but the difficulty comes then when the state tells you to do something and you're not exactly sure whether that's obedience to God or not. And all I have to do is say COVID. And you all know what I'm talking about. Executive orders, vaccine mandates. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And what are we to do? Are we to trust god and disobey the mandates because that's the only way that we can obey god or are we to trust god and take the vaccine and take the restrictions because that's the only way to obey god here who tells us to obey our governing authorities let me just say in many of these situations it's just hard it just is there's no easy answers the answer is easy when they tell you to do something, the government tells you to do something, that's clearly forbidden in God's word. You know, stop worshiping Jesus, stop sharing the gospel, rat out on your fellow Christians. No, you can't do that. You can never do that and still obey Jesus. But there's a lot, especially a modern government might ask you to do, that's never directly addressed in the Bible. And what do you do then? Well, you have to turn then to the principles of Scripture on a whole host of matters, too. And you must go by your conscience, a conscience that in faith is informed by those scriptures. And that will surely then mean that you will have to prayerfully make some really hard decisions, and maybe decisions not that everybody agrees with, but you must in faith walk in obedience to Jesus. God must have your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate trust, your conscience, and all your affection. Never obey man to disobey God. Give to God what is God's, ultimately your soul. Still further, how does this all hold together? How are we to think about this with these clashing authorities? Are the authorities equal? No, of course not. Well, how does this work? Well, get this. Here's what Jesus is getting at. You can let go of your tax dollars, so to speak. You can give back to those things to Caesar that are his. Why? Because your king, King Jesus, is after something far greater and far more valuable. You catch this? To illustrate this, remember how Jesus spoke to his governor. Pilate told Jesus, he threatened him with death. He says, don't you know I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you have no authority unless it was given from heaven. But by implication, what is Jesus saying? Yes, you do have authority to crucify me. Because God the Father put it there. Well, let's back it up to the 18th chapter of John. Pilate's threatening Jesus with death. He's threatening him with death because he's a pretend king. And here's how Jesus responded to that. This is John 18, verse 36. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's in a totally different plane. It's on a totally different setting. It's a different kind of kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. If my kingdom was of this world, Jesus is saying, we would all be taking up worldly means to advance the kingdom. We'd be taking up the sword. We'd be taking up coups, taking up opposition. We'd be taking up bombs. We'd be fighting and resisting in flesh and blood. But my kingdom is not of this world. And this just undercuts all of those notions of some kinds of Christian nationalism that are fighting to establish some kind of Christian country, some kind of Christian geocentric nation. But see, Jesus' kingdom rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. It goes above, it transcends all of these earthly ideas. And what this means is Jesus' kingdom, you can't find it on a map. It can't trace its borders because it's a heavenly kingdom come down to rule over the hearts of men. Hearts that believe in him and have been changed by the gospel, you see. Again, in that way, his kingdom is not found in borders, in militaries, in taxation. His heavenly kingdom, it does show up on earth, but you know where it shows up? Right here. In the gathering of those who by faith unite around Jesus. We are outposts, manifestations of the invisible heavenly kingdom and rule of Jesus. We then are citizens of heaven sent out as ambassadors into the earthly kingdoms of the world. Why? Not to make America Christian again, say, by passing certain laws and legislation, say, by electing Christian officials into office, or by re. Posting the Ten Commandments into our courtrooms? Or you fill in the blank whatever you think would designate a Christian nation. Now wait, I need to stop for a moment before I just undercut all of those things. Rick, are you saying those are bad things, that those are not good things? No, I'm not saying that. What a good it is for our neighbors if we have righteous laws in our country. What a good it is in our communities. If you can imagine, if abortion was outlawed, the murder of the innocent, what good it would be for our country to have Christian politicians, these are folks informed by the wisdom of God and the word of God, and they obey it. If those kind of servant leaders were were ministering to the constituents that they were elected to represent, I mean, those would all be good things. And dear brothers and sisters, pray for that for our country, for the sake of the United States alone. But understand, whatever that is, you are not building Christ's kingdom. That's not kingdom building. At least the kingdom that Christ builds. No, we are ambassadors. We are emissaries of Christ's kingdom. And we've been sent into the kingdoms of this world to do what? To fight abortion? To end taxation? To establish just laws? The apostle Paul used this figure of ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5. And he tells us what ambassadors of Christ the king should sound like. He said this, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What's the appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because we have a gospel message that says, How? For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our message. That's how people get right with God. That's what we've been commissioned to tell our neighbors. Be reconciled to God. There's a God who will show you mercy because he died for you. Will you come to him? That's how his kingdom is built. Repent and believe on Jesus. So then, brothers and sisters, people of Christ's heavenly kingdom, don't be tricked or caught in the trap of trying to build the wrong kind of kingdom. And understand, especially every election cycle, (laughs) there's a lot of people trying to push you into their camp to be motivated and energized for their kingdom. But his gospel kingdom transcends them all and demands our ultimate allegiance. Because our king lays claim to every soul from every tribe, nation, and kingdom of the earth. May we not settle in that way for less. May we not fall into the trap of religious nationalism. Second trap we will look at is pictured with the Sadducees—the trap of theological liberalism, verses twenty-three through thirty-three. Now, the Sadducees—they are not exactly the same of what I would call like modern academic quote Christian theological liberals that you find in the ivory towers of different seminaries and institutions. Uh, But they have some parallels. And the main parallel, I think, is this. Between the academic liberals of our day and the Sadducees of the ancient time, they had an anti-supernatural bent to them. And it was evidenced in the Sadducees because they denied the future reality of the resurrection. They thought, once you died, you're gone, and it's over. And that's how Matthew reintroduces us to the Sadducees, this other faction in Judaism. Let's look there, verse 23 of Matthew 22. The same day Sadducees came to Jesus, and by the way, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked Jesus a question. This appears to be the defining feature. It was the distinguishing feature, especially between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This matter of, is there going to be a resurrection or not? Pharisees said yes, Sadducees say no. We catch Paul in Acts, I believe it's 23, chapter 23. He makes a whole division. Uh, There's a great uproar over that matter of the resurrection. But the point is, for the Sadducees, this issue of the resurrection, this is familiar ground for them. They debate this thing all the time. It's like trying to talk to a Baptist about baptism. (laughs) That's like what they know. (laughs) That's what they talk about. The Sadducees, in the same way, they know all about resurrection and how it's not true. So they ploy on Jesus probably what's a tried and true debate tactic to try and catch him, to try and uncover him as a fraud. So here it is, verse 24. And they start by going to the Bible. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is more or less a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the rationale runs like this. You see, in ancient Israel, the way God set up the old covenant kingdom, family names and heritages had to be passed on. You had to have an heir. Because God gave promises to each family and even lots and plots of land. And you had to have an heir to inherit that. So when someone died and didn't have an heir, the law made provisions to do something about it. In this case in particular, a brother must raise up an heir through the widow, the sister-in-law, to then carry on the state. It's called a leverite marriage. But here's the point. The Sadducees bring this up because they would say this. If that's how things work in God's mind in God's law and God's plan, then you understand there cannot possibly be a resurrection from the dead. It makes no sense. This is their point. And to prove their point, they create this crazy scenario. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, again, this is where it gets ridiculous. And after them all, the woman died. So again, to get the picture, the first guy who married her didn't have any kids. And so it kept passing down to each brother. And none of them gave kids through this lady. And then she died. That's the scenario. And so here's their punchline. Verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. And you can imagine the Sadducees snickering now. <laughs> who had, who's she going to be married to in the resurrection, Jesus? <laughs> Just tell me. Clearly, they find the notion of the resurrection just ridiculous. That's why they paint this hypothetical scenario. They think they've won. They can't imagine Jesus having an answer for this. And probably because no other people have generated one for them. But remember, they're talking to the Son of God. Jesus has an answer. But before he gives his answer, he first gives a verdict. And it's condemning. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're wrong. You could translate that. You are deceived. You err. You've been pulled and you wander off from the truth. You've been entrapped by your own corrupted thinking. You're off base. That's why you deny the resurrection. Not because you're so clever, but because you're so hard of heart and deceived. Deceived about things you thought you knew a lot about, the Bible and God's power. Now, it's interesting about the Sadducees in that they were indeed devoted to the Scriptures, but only to a certain portion of the Scriptures. And again, this in some ways parallels how the Sadducees are like the academic theological liberals of our day. They might study intently the Bible, they just undercut the credibility of most of the Bible until you get down to only a little bit, that only Jesus' words are the truth, or only this book is true, and so forth. They pick and choose. They pick and choose what's authoritative, what's true. Now, for the Sadducees, they picked and chose only the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that makes sense in part, why they're so slow to believe in the resurrection. You want to prove the resurrection from the Old Testament? Go to Daniel chapter 12. That's a really clear place to go. Of course, if you did that with the Sadducees, they'd say, so what? That's not authoritative scripture. Show me in the Pentateuch. I mean, they're going to claim Moses never taught a lick about the resurrection. And to their point, Moses' own laws that he gave us, like this whole thing about this marriage stuff, that only makes sense if there is no resurrection. But Jesus interrupts all of that to say, you're wrong, you're mistaken, you're deceived, you've been pulled off course. And to prove this, first Jesus clarifies how things will go down in the resurrection. Namely, there won't even be marriage in the resurrection. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven, single and solely devoted to their God. How does that make you feel as you anticipate the resurrection? Is there a sadness to that? It's understandable. I mean, the person that you've committed your whole life to on this earth, to love above all others, to be intimate with, to share time with, to care for, through thick and thin, the good and bad, that marvelous union that's even celebrated in the Bible. I mean, there's a whole book rejoicing in the marital union, and yet it ends at death. And it is not recovered in the resurrection. Why is that? Well, because there will be a marriage in heaven, right? But it's between Christ and his bride. And that's what all of these earthly marriages have been preparing us for. The day when the people of God will be single and solely devoted to our groom, Christ. The weddings and marriages of today are just mirrors, shadows to anticipate that day when we will hear, like in Revelation chapter 21 verses 2 and 3, John has this vision of that final marriage day, and it says this, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, note this, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, like, why is heaven so great? This is it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, even those first marriages, have all passed away. It's a glorious day, and our earthly marriages are preparing us for that marriage day. And yet, as you think about it, if you have a good marriage these days on earth, I think there's still a tinge of sadness in that, isn't it? It's hard to even think about. But consider this. If you are married right now, and maybe you've been married for some time, how can you be the best spouse for your spouse right now? How can you be the most loving spouse to your spouse right now? What would you do? What would you help them with? You help them love Jesus. That's what you do. That's the best thing. The best thing you can be to your spouse is a help to have them love Jesus and treasure Jesus more. And in heaven... As we are singly united to Jesus, all of us, and we are then separated from sin, that's when you will be, for the first time, best prepared to love your former spouse and to help you both love Jesus more. One pastor put it like this, I thought thought so helpful. He says, so the irony of the resurrected state will be that my marriage to my wife will be forever dissolved. But our love for each other and for God will be ever increasing. That's not so bad. More love of Christ for me and for Aaron? There could be nothing better than that. But back to the text in Matthew. That's an aside. Why is Jesus mentioning this about the whole marriage thing? That there's no marriage in heaven. Well, of course, if there's no marriage in heaven, their whole conundrum about who this gal is going to be married to in their hypothetical situation, it just falls apart. None of them are going to be married in heaven anyways. But then Jesus adds this, and this comes as the damning blow. Not only did they misunderstand the resurrection, but they so grossly misunderstood God's power in the scriptures. And to prove this point, Jesus is going to go right back to the scriptures, and he even leverages a scripture from Exodus. By the way, that's one of the scriptures the Sadducees said they believed in. And Jesus points it out to say, I don't think you're listening, even to the scriptures you say you listen to. Look at this, verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what has been said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, that's a quote, that first part. I'm the God of Abraham, the, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's taken from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, when the Lord is calling Moses out of the burning bush. And you see, God identifies himself to Moses as the one who was God for his ancestors. Of course, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, to be really clear, as God is talking to Moses then at the burning bush, in case it's not obvious, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had been dead for some 400 years, for a long time, by the time God's now talking to Moses at the burning bush. They were long gone by Moses' time. But Jesus the careful exegete that he is, looking at every word, even at the tenses of the word, he makes this crucial observation of what God told Moses. God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because to Jesus' point, they're not dead, they're alive. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living They may have died, but they're not dead. They're alive in the presence of God awaiting that final resurrection. And so it appears then the Sadducees have sorely underestimated the power of God. Why? Because they can't imagine there's life that they don't see. Because they can't imagine that God can raise the dead when they've never seen that before. But the dead in Christ are actually quite alive and they will be alive forevermore with a resurrected body because God said so and he has the power to do it. This is crucial. Despite whatever all of the theological scholars and PhDs and ivory towers claim, there is life after death. It's not just blank, nothing, zero, but there is either eternal life or eternal death after this life. Death on this earth is not the last word. Why? Because Christ wins, he has won, he conquered death, and he resurrects all who trust in him. And that's so huge because this is why we live the Christian life, isn't it? It, That's why we take up our cross and die to ourselves. That's why we can humble ourselves and give out and serve. Why? Because we know it's going to be worth it. We're going to rise from the dead after this life. That's why we spend, that's why we sacrifice. We give up our comforts, we give up our treasures to get and see the saving, resurrecting gospel out there to see the resurrecting God face to face. And that's true, whether we understand all the ins and outs of it. Trust me, God's got it figured out whether you do or not. And that's the issue. Will you trust God? Will you trust his word? Even when your mind cannot fully understand it or when your eyes have never seen it, will you trust in the power of God? Because get this, the scholars, the academics, your eyes, your feelings, your doubts, you're going to trust those? Or are you going to dare to believe that God is powerful and that his promises are true and he has the power to bring every one of those to pass? Will you trust Christ? Will you follow his teaching? Or will you be stuck in the folly of erroneous factions? So learn from Christ. Escape from the fallacious traps. And there you'll find the truth. And among many things, that means at least three things for us this morning. It means this first. Believe and hold to all of God's word. All of it. Don't try and explain his word away when it says things you don't like. And even when he commands things that you don't want to hear, don't say to yourself, well, it's not in the red letter. Or it's in that Old Testament book. or It's in that part of Daniel that scholars have questions about. No, hold to all the word of God. All scriptures breathed out by God. So that means as you come to the word, to all of it, you need to pray for an open heart because it's going to convict you. And you need to study it more, dive in. If you've got questions, that doesn't make sense. The problem's up here, or maybe in here. It's not in here. Trust Him in it. That's first. Believe and hold to all of the Word of God. Second, trust the incredible power of God that we see chronicled and preserved in His Word. Maybe this is why some of you doubt His Word. Because you doubt His power. You doubt he has the power to create in six days. You doubt he has the power to raise the dead. You doubt he has the power to actually change a hardened heart. You doubt he has the power to create with a word or to judge the whole world in a worldwide flood or to one day judge the whole world with fire. It comes down to this. Is God not powerful enough to do what his word has promised? Don't underestimate the power of his word. Trust in it. This is our hope. Finally then, let His Word drive your mission and priorities. Let His Word drive your mission and priorities. Don't be distracted from the concerns that Christ has called you to in His Word. Don't be taken with everyone's fad, everyone's new book, their pressing concern that they claim every real Christian must adopt and be all about this top priority. No, we can live above that when we hold to his kingdom and to his word. So go to his word. What does his word tell you your mission is? What does his word tell you your concerns should be? Trust him. Follow that. Learn from Christ. Put out the noise. Follow the Lord Jesus. And you'll be just fine. But we need his help. So let's pray for this. Let's pray together. Indeed, O God, we do pray for mercy. We pray that you forgive us, forgive us for our, just our sins. Forgive us for our apathy, forgive us for our doubts or unbelief. Forgive us for being distracted and taken with so many, maybe good things, but not the things that you've called us to. We pray that you would be gracious in that, that we'd be a people centered, riveted, bound to your word, people formed by your word, matured by your word, becoming like Christ because of your word, And so then we would walk in it, for there we find blessing, there we would bless our neighbors, there we would go out and follow you in the gospel, and speaking it, letting it be quick to our lips. So may we be a people prepared for the good works you've called us, escaping the traps of error and guided by your truth. Do that for the glory of Christ our Savior, in whose name alone we pray.